Good Wednesday morning, and today we'll be talking with Dr. John Patrick, and he is going to talk about the most valuable piece of advice he was ever given. The best piece of advice I ever had came from Bonhoeffer. I thought I got it out of life together, but I read it, I read it quite often, and when I was looking for it, I couldn't find it. Uh, So it must be somewhere else, but nevertheless, um, he should receive the credit. He was thinking about what the German church was going to face under the Nazis, and he had a great deal of insight. And so um, this piece of advice just blew me away when I started thinking about it. He said, everybody who's a Christian goes through the ups and downs of life, just like everyone else. The difference is we're not alone. Um and therefore we do better. But your spiritual life also goes up and down. We go for periods when we get no subjective satisfaction out of the means of grace. You can pick up the Bible, it's dead. Say your prayers, they feel as though they're bouncing off the ceiling. You go to church, untouched. Even the Lord's Supper. So what's going on? Well, it's part of the training program. It's not for no reason. And it's a lesson that we're very, very slow to learn. But fundamentally, it's the lesson that John, uh, that Jesus uh, says in, in John's Gospel. You've got to learn that you can do nothing without me of any significance. Now, that in the can-do Western society, particularly the American one, is really very upsetting because we like to do it all ourselves. But Jesus is telling us, no, you can't. That's a stunning thought. I think about that verse a lot. I have been for several months now. Nothing without me. Obviously, it doesn't mean you can't work, you can't go around and do your life, you can't live, but nothing of any significance is what he's meaning. Because it comes from the parable of the vine. I am the vine, you are the branches, and my father is the wine dresser. And you know, long straggly bits of vine that get off on their own have to be cut back to be fruitful. They've got to stay a reasonable length. They mustn't be too far away from the stem if they're going to bear good fruit. Jesus is using that analogy to say, you must be attached to me but you can't do that on your own but I'm there Uh, so how do we reattach so to speak when we get in this sad state of flatness in our faith uh, what do we do well Bonhoeffer's advice is very simple he says ask the Lord to give you a passage of scripture from him to you as a direct gift and just, he says, just add it to your prayers. Just keep praying that prayer uh, regularly. And in due course, he will answer it. Not in your time, but in his time. Um, sometimes it can be very quick. Sometimes it can take months. You're hungry for his presence. Once it's happened, you, you're hungry for it to happen again. Um in my case, uh, 
it was as I came to the point where the Lord was weaning me off my academic life. Um, which I loved. I, mean, uh, I was blessed in what I did. Um, but I was making the mistake of letting it grow too big. And you can't do good science without passion. It's it, When you think you just apply the so-called scientific method, you'll get good science. No, you won't. You'll just get boring science. Piled higher and deeper science, which is what a PhD is. Um, but science that captures you and gets you out of bed in the morning, that's quite different. Uh, for me, it was one protein. Uh, I didn't even know it was a protein when I started. Uh, I wouldn't get out of bed for the protein being studied in the next lab, but I got out of bed every morning for my protein. Uh, and it gave, gave me a very interesting life. But uh, when I'd settled into Ottawa and I thought, you know, well, I've got 20 years, where, where do I go from here? And I was thinking about cloning the protein. But then I realized how much work that would be. And uh, I had children growing up that I hadn't been spending enough time with. And then one thing after another, I won't go through them now, uh, hit me. I wasn't as passionate about uh, what I was doing. Um, I was being asked by students to do things that I had never thought that I would do. Like I was bullied into doing a Bible study by a, a, a few students and I said I'd do uh, four weeks and I ended up doing ten years and I loved it. And then I started looking at their lives and comparing them to m what mine had been like at the same time and realized the education system, this was the late 80s, was really falling apart. It was nowhere near anything that I'd had. Then I read Bloom's Closing the American Mind, uh, an atheist uh, philosopher, one of the best Chicago ever had, saying the same thing, only saying it more eruditely. Um, and then I came across Bonhoeffer. I didn't enjoy church. I, I told the pastor at the time, look, the church is boring. I'm sorry, but I have to say that. Uh, you have a choice. I'll sit in the back row and read a book and listen to you, or I'll go to sleep. Um, very rude, uh, but he, he introduced me some years later with that introduction when I was in his con con when I'd been in his congregation, uh, and he said I chose to have you awake and then talk to you about how you would have approached the sermon. So one thing after another was happening, and then I came across this thing in Bonhoeffer. So uh, I started praying. And a little while later, a bunch of I annoyed a bunch of uh, students, and they demanded a apology, not in the modern sense where they'd all have hissy fits and scream and stamp their feet like two-year-olds, but uh, they waited till the end of the lecture, and about twenty of them came up and said, "You've no right to call us ignorant." I said, it "Wasn't me. It was Alan Bloom." Uh, so I'm not apologising, and he's not here to apologise. Uh, but his basic point, I think, although he doesn't make it in that way, is that your generation is biblically illiterate, which means that you're suffering from metaphor depletion. 
and we can only talk meaningfully to one another using metaphors. Uh, so, why don't we do the test? We're a quasi-experimental faculty. You all think Gandhi is a great man and you always take his advice. He said the Sermon on the Mount was the greatest piece of writing he'd ever written, he'd ever read. Uh, tell me how it starts and what it says. And of course they couldn't. They couldn't even give me one beatitude. They didn't even know that it started with the beatitude. They didn't know what the beatitudes were. So I said, well, there you are, you're ignorant. So, Bloom is right. Um, then they said, what are you going to do about it? And I said, well, frankly, nothing. Uh, I'm busy. Uh, what you really need, I said, without thinking any more, is an Agnostics Anonymous group, because you don't even know the questions, let alone the answers. So, uh, get to work. And they said, why don't you help us? And so I said, okay, so let's have an extracurricular series of discussions. Why don't we call it Agnostics Anonymous? So AA was born on the spot. And the only prerequisite for that course was that I said, we'll keep the Christians out. So Christians were not allowed to come. They did come, but they had to creep in late and sit at the back and they weren't allowed to say anything. But it was astonishing. I set out to prove to them that objective moral truth must exist. They thought I had to hope in hell of winning that argument, and of course every year I did. But I learnt a lot, and they learnt a lot. I only know of one who became a Christian because of that course, but all of them left the course with an entirely different view of what Christianity was, that it was not stupid, it was serious, and it was a, something you ought to know about. But as I walked away from that initial interview, I realized, although I had bits of the Sermon on the Mount drifting around in my head, I couldn't give a coherent account of it. Now, here's a side piece of information for any of you thinking about an academic career. God only makes a few because we don't do a lot of good. Uh, we have some uses, but not as many as we like to think we have. Um, and the way it's being run by bureaucrats at the moment, it's getting less and less satisfying. So don't go that way uh, unless you are made for it. And the way you know that is that when you've read something and you realize it's important, you can talk about it and you don't need anything more than skeletal notes and if you're really interested you won't even need those. Uh, in other words you give lectures at the drop of a hat without any problem like a baseball player can hit a ball out of a park if they lob it up to him without any problem. Uh, you know people have skills all over the place uh, they're, they're not things they work on them but they're, they're natural talents. Uh, that's one of the problems with the idea of equality of outcome. It is such nonsense. It, it's not possible. Are we all going to have a mind of Einstein? We'd never get the, the lunch prepared. Uh, no, we have to find what our talents are and develop them and they are not equally distributed. They're distributed in a way that a society can work. This identity politics stuff has got to die because it will destroy us. Because we can't do without inventiveness 
And the people who are really inventive are not normal mortals. Uh, you wouldn't want to be married to most of them. But they have to find their way in life just as you do. I mean, my father uh, never had any education. He was a working man, a blue-collar man, but he loved his God, he loved his family, uh, and he worked 40-plus hours a week uh, all his life till he retired at 65 in the same sort of job the whole way through. During the war, it was more, much more than 45 hours. I saw him only on Saturday on during the war. At least he had the weekend off when the war was over. Um, but he was a good man. He never complained. Uh, he knew where God had put him. He knew what he had to do, and he did it. But as I walked away and realized I could give multiple lectures without notes, but I couldn't talk about our Lord's longest sermon without notes, that's not defensible. I certainly had the abilities to do it. I just never applied my mind to that particular topic. So here was Bonhoeffer's answer. And he told you what you have to do. When you get the passage of scripture that you know is directed at you, you read it every day until it comes to life. Uh, now, in my case, it was three chapters. So I didn't read it all every day to begin with, but very shortly I did. And very shortly after that, I didn't need to read it. Um, except to look up bits that I wanted to think about a bit more. And it did come to life. It was like water, rain, falling in the desert. And suddenly it comes into bloom. If you've never gone on YouTube and looked at uh, the YouTubes on Namaqualand, N-A-M-Q-U-A-L-A-N-D, on the southern borders of Namibia, it's a desert. And it brings that metaphor to life because there are more bulbs in that desert per square meter of soil by an order of magnitude than anywhere else in the world and when the rain falls and we were fortunate to get there one time when the rain had fallen you can't walk there without treading on flowers and it's not just one color it's all the colors you can imagine absolutely stunning well that metaphor is about right for what happened to me with the Sermon on the Mount it totally transformed everything I did. Um, hardly a day goes, probably a day, no day goes by without some bit of it popping on, into my head. Um, I usually wake up in the middle of the night. Um, I think it's the good Lord saying, my son, I haven't heard from you today. What's the reason? Because that's when I pray. And when I've said my prayers and prayed for my family and the things that are bothering me uh, to go to sleep I start reciting the Sermon on the Mount to myself usually I don't get past 12 verses before I'm asleep it's a very good way of knowing that your insomnia is nowhere near what you think it is get something learn something by heart a, a psalm will probably be enough uh, and every time you wake up at night recite it to yourself you won't get to the end of the psalm most nights and of course, what better way is it to go to sleep? But this week, I woke up and I got through the whole sermon before I went back to sleep. That was a kind of um, nudge to me, I think. So that's why I'm talking about it now.
Um, it's an interesting phenomenon when that happens. And little bits of it sort of glow. That's the only way I can describe it. So what I'm going to do now is just give you the first bit and depending on your response and Craig's response we can do bits more over the next little while. Uh, if I do the whole sermon uh, as I think it should be done now it takes me two to three hours and I think that's about what's right because what we've got in the Bible is not the Sermon on the Mount as it was spoken. We've got a distilled version, a precy, if you like. And Matthew was a good guy at getting these things right. I think it was his conversion experience listening to the Sermon on the Mount. I like the depiction of uh, a Matthew that is given to us in The Chosen. I think they, 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 they probably nailed it slightly on the, on the spectrum, as we say, and a bit obsessive-compulsive. Exactly what you need to get this sermon properly reported. And I, I'm sure Jesus went from village to village and the content was the same. He came bringing the message of the kingdom, which is what this is. So what we have is a distillation and it takes, what, 15 minutes to read at the most? But I don't think anybody allowed Jesus to stop talking for a couple of hours at least. So, and it is a complete sermon. It's it's the world's greatest sermon. So the job that you have is to bring it to life with the help of the Holy Spirit. It's going to take two to three hours to get it to blossom, as it will. Um, wonderful experience. Now, I've had it happen with other passages because once I'd learned how you do this... Uh, yeah, um, that's the way I do it. Um, so the first thing is to get that picture in your mind of the people sitting on that hillside. Uh, uh, we went a couple of years ago to the place where it's supposed to happen. It's supposed to have happened, and it's, it's a convincing location they've chosen. It would make sense. A little sort of amphitheater. Uh, natural. Anyway, um, then you have to start thinking and praying. The first thing that I hadn't noticed was what precedes the first beatitude. The first beatitude is blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But Matthew gives us a little introduction. And at the end of uh, chapter 4, which is Sabbath, uh, after sunset happened, people turned out to get healed by Jesus in the village and he healed a lot of people that night the next morning when he woke up of course the, the clinic was full again he looked out and there were crowds of people come to see miracles and to be healed and I presume he spoke to his father he tells us he did nothing except what his father told him to do and his father apparently said don't heal today take your disciples and go outside the village and sit down and teach them. Teaching is more important than healing. Now no doctor would agree to that but it's right isn't it? All the miracles that Jesus did, all the people that he healed, they all died and they're gone. 
but what he said that day on that hillside has echoed throughout the world ever since and is fundamental to understanding Western culture because we are the product of Judeo-Christian thought uh, primarily and we should stop being pussy-footed about it and say it and ask the people who don't like it prove to me that that is not the truth they can't because it is the truth Shakespeare is laced through with the King James Version if you don't know the King James Version you can't understand Shakespeare they used to have a program in Britain where they asked famous people to talk to Roy Plumley about being cast away on a desert island and he wanted to know what eight discs they would take with them and at the end he said what books would you take and they would routinely say you'll give me the Bible and Shakespeare won't you as a starter and he said of course these were atheists and people like that but they wanted the Bible and Shakespeare if they were going to be on a, on a desert island they were all intelligent they knew why they wanted those two books because they wanted a book that they could read again and again and again and uh, those are the two best books for that purpose so what he says is very interesting I say to physicians you can't possibly go to the clinic and say not today but you do need to do that regularly if you don't have that kind of Sabbath in your life you will burn out especially as the way the bureaucrats are pushing the system at the moment and taking away your control making you do their version of health care and you've seen what they did in COVID and the reward and the reaping of those consequences have got a long way to go uh, totally screwed the whole thing up but um, you do need breaks that build your soul and uh, one of the things that came out of this over the years was some years later we started a summer program for physicians in Ottawa um, in which we take a week and we go through a period of history and look how it happened and based in the concept that we are the product of Judeo-Christian tradition and the the course takes about eight years uh, we've had uh, we're approaching 25 years uh, quite a few guys uh, went for 20 years without missing a summer well, there's only one left now age does those things uh, but they come back to do the course again they say it's, it gets better every time you do it but they come most of all because here they gather in Ottawa and they have a week physicians where they don't have to be looking over their shoulders to see if somebody is going to say something to somebody who's malicious and nasty the HIPAA regulations are the most stupid piece of bureaucratic nonsense I know of but that to go against them is a felony in the States uh, I don't know how many lives have been saved by going against them fortunately I didn't work in that environment uh, you need to talk to people where you find them when they have the answers you need if you're not allowed to do it without the patient present you don't get the conversations you need and without their permission uh, they'd all give it in retrospect but other people will get hissy about it so Jesus says no you must take time and it's got to be serious time not five minutes every now and again 
So I started on my journey. And the first thing I realized is, of course, the Beatitudes are technically aphorisms. There is their pithy sayings, which have a lot in them. And a teacher's job is to, a good teacher, will plant pithy sayings in students' minds, which they will remember forever. But the best ones will also lead them on intellectually. Um, and that's increasingly so. I mean, all the information in the world is freely available to you, but the ability to sort out the rubbish from the, the wheat is not even taught how you do that. And I, I, I would imagine that most high school students couldn't define an aphorism and certainly couldn't give me any that were intellectually important. Well, here we've got a set of them, uh, eight of them. And the first one is, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, this had to be explained. It's not self-explanatory. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What on earth does he mean? And yet, these are the first words of our Lord's teaching ministry that we have. They're not going to be unimportant, are they? By definition. And what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Now, the way you do this, of course, is you, you go through the scriptures, first of all, and trace those phrases through and find out what goes on and of course he's quoted from the Old Testament uh, the Lord knew the Old Testament and there it is poor in spirit they will be blessed what does it mean what what's our spirit about that part of us that motivates us that makes us alive he says it's got to be poor. What, does, what on earth does that mean? And then I realized, of course, that the entry into the kingdom, which is what he says comes, requires repentance, requires recognition of sin. We're all fallen sinners. If I could now put a bubble over your head and everybody watching this video would see that bubble and it stays there for a week and all your thoughts are on display where are you going to hide? Uh, how, what chance is it that your marriage will survive the week if some of the things you think were immediately on display uh, what are your children going to think? what are your work people going to think? no, we couldn't handle that but of course it's all visible to God and he says, you've got to face what's there. The starting point of wisdom is recognizing what a problem it is and what a mess we are. Chesterton said, surely the one Christian doctrine that needs no proof is the fall. And of course it is. We're all fallen creatures. I love his phrase at the end of, uh, what is it? Third chapter of uh, orthodoxy, flag of the world. He, he says, uh, we, are the, we all know that we are the survivors of a colossal wreck. And of course the wreck is the fall. And we have echoes of it in our mind. Because we're made in the image of God. 
we come into this world not as blank slates but as knowing good and evil uh, it has to be developed of course but children know it they're, they're born with insights into the nature of good and evil Lewis even uses this as, as the start of mere Christianity where he has two kids talking to one another and one says I gave you some of my chocolate you should give me some of your orange the other one never you you know the other one would never say that's not fair they know it's fair they start rationalizing to keep it all for themselves but they know the truth we all do children know it from the start I think as, as again as Chesterton said children are mystified by what they meet when they come out of the womb because they're prepared for one thing and they get us and we are fallen creatures and they see it and it mystifies them they speak the truth to us quite often don't they when they're small uh, we've got to come to terms with that and it doesn't go away when you become a Christian does it what happens when you become a Christian is you become more aware of it and you work on it with the help of the Holy Spirit by developing a Christian mind there's nothing in the New Testament that is about how you feel as being your responsibility feelings are God's province he can give them you when you need them um, but your mind is your responsibility and Romans 12:2 does not say you must renew your mind in order to feel better uh, no renewing your mind is the activity feeling better is not something you can't do much about uh, in any real sense feelings come they go we know not whence they come nor whither they go but what you think uh, can change the way you live it does it was essential to the Judeo-Christian uh, impact on the world on culture that they God first of all spent several millennia teaching the Jews the commandments so that when he arrived they wouldn't accept him he could have gone to any other culture particularly Hinduism and they would have just made him another saint and put him on the wall so to speak but Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount he's totally reframing the Ten Commandments the Torah as a whole so he came to the people who wouldn't accept him because they had made their own model of what the Torah was supposed to do make them good so that Messiah would come it's not going to happen that way and Jesus is explaining this here so the most fundamental truth about everybody you meet and if they're intimidating you you can think about this they are a fallen creature just as I am and nowadays most of them unfortunately do not have a saviour do not have the experiences I'm talking about because that's what he brings but this is where he starts making a disciple I believed the truth I never knew a time when I didn't it always seemed to me highly unlikely that it wasn't true people don't go to martyrdom and take their children with them for something they know to be untrue but in the first century there was oral memory of Christ so people knew people who had known Christ if they hadn't known him themselves and the fact I always wondered why those several hundred people came back at the resurrection the Sermon on the Mount taught me why that was to give a wide enough spread in the uh, in a small 
population of the world at that time uh, of eyewitness accounts of Jesus. So nobody really challenged eyewitnesses accounts in the first hundred years or so afterwards because eyewitness accounts that are as staggering as that will go down as family tradition for three, four, five generations, but they will die out. So it's all set up. And the first step in discipleship is day by day to realize you're going to need salvation on an, in an ongoing way. To make this point, I usually quote um, Paul, where he says in one of his epistles, and I'm going to misquote, you'll have to play the, uh, uh, the Christian uh, for this purpose, Craig. Um, Paul says, the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who have been saved, it is the power of God. Now, I made one error in that, purposeful error, but it's very important. Did you pick it up? Hmm? You were a bit faint for me. Being saved, yes. It's very rare to find that. What Christ wants is somebody who he could come back now and say, how are you saved today? It's ongoing. Church on Sunday, before you get to requests, if I was the pastor, I would be asking people, I want us to start a Sabbath with... Recount how Christ came into your life as a saving force this week. How he stopped you saying something that you were about to say but you didn't. Or made you do something that you were about to neglect. I love, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have failed to do what we ought to do and we have done those things that we ought not to do. And we didn't in some cases. That's where we start. And a disciple is more likely to have that experience and it starts with this one blessed are the poor in spirit blessed are those who have faced the truth as far as they can stand it of themselves fortunately he doesn't overwhelm us with what he sees he does it bit by bit uh, he's always working on us we all have to deal with the pride in one way or another and in the end it's not going to matter I love the fact that Thomas Aquinas, having done the greatest intellectual feat in 500 years, had a meeting with Jesus a few weeks before he died. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, it is well done. What do you wish? And Thomas said, only you, O Lord. And he never wrote another word. He, did, he never finished the Summa. And when asked why he'd stopped, he said, oh, it's all straw. Can you imagine that? It's like having five Nobel Prizes and, oh, they're nothing. That's what Thomas Aquinas said when he actually, in a state of grace, met Christ and looked back and realized, it's been wonderful. I've enjoyed it. Other people are going to enjoy it too, and that's wonderful, but it's nothing. There will be equity in, in heaven because compared to what's there, everything we've done, is nothing except get to know the Lord 
And that is what the kingdom is. Uh, and he says, the moment you are intellectually honest about the truth that you find in your own soul, you're in the kingdom. You don't know it yet because it's got to go through the next process. But truth always leads you to Christ. That's why atheists are much closer to Christ than nothings, people who have no known religion. Atheists have a religion, it's just that it, it's one that doesn't answer any questions. If there is no God, nothing has meaning. Uh, we're here, it's all a bit of a charade. You do what you like doing, if making people better, so fine. But life, meaningless, and you can't live without meaning. So if you're truthful, you will be pushed slowly. One of my best friends, John Robson, took 20 years on that process. Uh, we met at a lecture, he enjoyed it and told somebody and we got to know one another. He was an atheist, a PhD in history, spoke several languages. Uh, I was a scientist and didn't speak any except English. But we both loved reading and we both loved arguing and we read and argued and changed one another's reading habits and thoughts and over a 20-year period he came to Christ. Um, and he can't put his finger on it. He simply knew that he had to say, yes, the story is true and I believe. And belief is a gift. So that's the first beatitude. I'll be interested if anybody wants more. Um, uh, from previous experience the answer will be yes uh, I noticed uh, or at least somebody else drew my attention to the fact that uh, when I was on a, a Q&A panel with Jordan Peterson shortly before he became famous at a little conference in Quebec I thought the question period went for half an hour but it went for over an hour and at one point um, Jordan Peterson was sitting next to me and I introduced him to the Sermon on the Mount in that way and it was interesting, the, the discussion that went on alongside uh, for a few minutes after that uh, was about, where did that come from? Who is this guy? Well, of course, this guy was unknown, Jordan Peterson, by the time that was brought to my attention, was world famous, because uh, it happened in a few weeks after that. But that's probably enough for today, isn't it? Thank you, John, and thank you all for listening today. If you guys enjoyed this, if you're listening on YouTube, feel free to leave a comment or subscribe. If you're listening on the podcast, feel free to like, share, and leave a review. We appreciate you, and we'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.